Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Today, I'm excited to have two guests joining me to talk about COVID-19 and charter school reopenings on the East Coast and West Coast. On the East Coast side, we have return visitor, Matt Plain, an education attorney in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And for the West Coast, we have Arizona education attorney, Mackenzie or Mac Woods. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Diana. Great to be here. So let's dive right in. And I want to start with, as Mac, you called it the best coast, which is going to stir some controversy. But have you reopened? And what would you say some of the bigger issues are that you're seeing schools in Arizona struggling with in terms of reopening? Yeah, thanks. So um, I think there's been a curious tension generally between uh, state authority and the decisions we put in the hands of school boards, right? And so I think there are so many unanswered questions and unique issues that we're all grappling with. Trying to organize a coherent approach on both levels is is tough to do. And finding the right balance of kind of decision-making authority at the school board level um, with concrete guidance and requirements at the state level um, make for uh, a challenging situation for any school leader to to navigate. And so, like in Arizona, our governor has issued three executive orders around school opening. And they are. They're open now um, in kind of a, a spectrum of ways. So it started last spring, just like everywhere else. All the schools were physically closed. And everybody was required to go online. And our legislature stepped in and passed an emergency bill to help bridge the gap with funding purposes and also provide some direction for schools that are operating in a completely remote environment. Because I would imagine like most, most state education laws, our school finance system isn't set up for this. We track and fund students based on kind of a button seats requirement, right? So we track number of minutes in the building and we have school finance memos that give uh, advice and, and you know guidance to schools about how to report their attendance. Well, being remote, that doesn't fit the brick and mortar. That doesn't fit the school finance model that we have. And so that was a major hurdle that our state leaders needed to, to grapple with. And in Arizona, we have, and this will kind of flow through the rest of our conversation today, but we have what's called the Arizona Online Instruction Program, which is our, our online school program. And that is set up through different you know, statutes and other school finance regulations. And so that's what we really leaned on was as kind of that's what, what the state of Arizona has in order to provide some kind of funding mechanism for schools to provide learning in a remote environment. And that's a program that's available to both districts and charters. Right? And so that was a challenge in the spring, but it, it kind of worked to solve the problem for the moment. But that was a, a short-term solution, right? Because that only addressed uh, the spring semester. And so as we moved into the fall, past, you know, through summer into the fall, our legislature uh, adjourned. So we no longer had that opportunity. So it fell to, there's a bit of a, uh, there's a period of time where we didn't know who was going to solve the problem, right? For the, for the fall, because we didn't, the legislator stepped in for the spring. And our governor stepped in with, an exec, with a couple executive orders, um, you know, and it generally required that you know, schools could not open uh, until August 17th despite what their calendar said, because I mean, so many school leaders were eager to, there's, there's a lot of learning lost when we went remote suddenly in, in the spring. And so a lot of schools were really, really eager to go back, you know, in July, as soon as the fiscal year started, right. To like, to start trying to make up for that lost ground. And so what the governor said was, you know, we can't go back in person. Um, can't open physically until August 17th. You can go remote. You can do some remote learning before that. You know, creating that that structure also included um, what were called on-site support services. And so essentially what the governor was saying is that on, on August 17th, every school is required to provide on-site support services for students who need a place to go. And that raised a lot of complicated questions. Because what that essentially said was, right, that 
what, what I took it to mean was, okay, so any student, you, you're required to be distance learning, uh, except for the students who need a place to go. Well, they're, they're, we don't know what that means. Right. I was going to ask you, what does that mean? Is that I need lunch or I'm an IEP, a special ed? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the there are a couple of additional requirements. One, so th- um, you could create these reasonable procedures and policies and ask questions of families um, to try to anticipate how many students are going to need those services, right? But there is a, there is a, a, a caveat that these policies cannot, in any event, serve as a barrier to the student having a place to go, right? So you can ask these questions, but the, my take was if they showed up, you need to have some option for them to be physical. Because as we know, like particularly our, our schools in, in lower income, historically underserved communities, like our parents are working multiple jobs. They don't have access to transportation. Like they desperately need somewhere for their child to be. When I was a teacher in Raleigh, Tennessee, my kids needed breakfast. They needed lunch. Like that's where they got their food. And so I think we did a great job. Our schools did a great job of providing that option, pick up like for picking up meals. And they were still providing a ton of meals to the community. So that, that was one aspect. Um, but with this on-site support services, you couldn't essentially, you know, prohibit a kid who needed a place to go from from having a, a spot. Does that also mean that there was any sort of um, preparation that parents or students needed to provide the schools? Or was that mandate that a child could be dropped off to the school on a Monday, um, but maybe wouldn't be there on Tuesday? Um, was there any predictability for the school to be able to plan? Yeah, so that's a great, great question. And that kind of feeds into this. Like you can ask, the school was was empowered to ask questions uh, of the parent, like when, you know, what kind of services are you going to need? And and our Department of Education issued some guidance around this because it was a burning question for everybody. What what does this mean? And, and I think our Department of Education did a good job. It was a little bit confusing guidance, but they're, as they kind of digested it and implemented that guidance over the course of several weeks, you found some nuggets in there that were really, really useful um, and gave some, some support to schools to be a little more bold in what they were asking, right? So like, okay, like when are you going to need services and what services are you going to need? Uh, but all against the backdrop in my, from the executive order that, okay, like you can ask all these questions, but if a kid shows up, not, not just under the executive order, right? But like just as a human, if a kid shows up, you're not going to turn them away. And so what that created uh, is a situation where schools were being told that you decide when you reopen in person or you go hybrid. And I can talk more about that because that's kind of our current dynamic. The schools were empowered to make that decision. But with this on-site support services, in my mind anyway, it created a bit of an irreconcilable conflict. A community now was really the decision maker in this situation. Because if a community decided, look, we're all sending our kids because we want to, we want our kids to go back in person. Like we need our kids to go somewhere, whether they economically needed it or they need the student was um, special education, English language learner, or otherwise. The community could really decide like when the school is opening, um, and but at the same time, schools are obligated to comply with CDC guidelines and social distancing and. Uh, like I think probably elsewhere, our charters and, and districts alike, like we have finite space. And so it's hard to create, you know, six feet of social distancing in a classroom when Arizona doesn't have a cap on per on, uh, classroom size. And so like if everybody shows up and we had surveys from client from some of my schools that were showing they were anticipating 90% of their students to show up on August 17th. It's like, well, how, I don't know how you comply with social with um, social distancing and other CDC guidelines. But the executive order also allowed us to, our schools to partner with community organizations like Boys and Girls Club and the rest and other community uh, organizations to help provide some of that support too. So it wasn't just you have to serve at your campus, you can also engage community partners, but that costs money. And so there's, there's a, just a ton of nuance here that created complexity for school leaders. Yeah. So, Matt, I'm curious, have you seen the same thing in New England um, with the that kind of, if your child needs a place to go, mandate? We haven't seen that mandate necessarily, uh, but New England, generally in New England, schools are 
set to reopen. And reopening obviously means different things in different places. I'll use Rhode Island as an example. On August 31st, Governor Raimondo held a press conference and said Rhode Island public schools have the green light, including charter schools, have the green light to reopen for full in-person learning and also indicated that they schools could phase in or stagger their reopening to eventually reopen for full in-person five days a week, at least for K-5, to uh, by mid-October. Now, the dates are different than Arizona, obviously, because we, we're starting a little bit later. By design, we're starting a little bit later because most of the state departments of education have kicked out the start date for schools within the state for a couple weeks. Rhode Island was till today, September 14th, Massachusetts till Wednesday, uh, and then other similar types of extensions across the Northeast. And very generally speaking, what we look at across the region are statewide data. Can can we safely return to school? Um, are the municipalities, or in the case of charter schools, catchment areas, are the catchment areas ready? Um, are, or are test positive rates too high to bring kids back? Do the schools have the ability to test students and staff? Do they have sufficient supplies, sufficient PPE, face masks, um, in some cases, plexiglass, cleaning supplies, things like that, and, and then operational readiness. A challenge we have in the Northeast is geographically small, but densely populated with historic buildings. What is historic buildings? What does that mean? They're old. Uh, and so we're challenged by that. And so just like with Mac and his schools out in Arizona, we're limited by finite space and systems that require some updating in order to meet the air quality standards to bring a full classroom of students back. Uh, so it's working in, in many cases, depending on the city, town, or municipality. It's opening distance, depending on their metrics, uh, hybrid or a couple days a week, but eventually planning to return full in person. And very generally across the region, we're prioritizing students with with special education needs, particularly those with significant needs, English language learners, students that can't access an appropriate education fully uh, in a full distance model. Okay. Matt, do you think, you know, uh, Mac has talked about sort of a lack of clarity from his state's government. Do you feel like Rhode Island and Massachusetts, if you can speak to that, has given good clarity on what is expected and what to do? Generally speaking, I think the state departments of education and the governors across the region have done a nice job of outlining the metrics that schools must meet in order to return to school. A challenge has been in our region as who makes the call and how do you determine if it's the right call and whose responsibility is it if the call isn't appropriate? If we find out later, it's not appropriate. Uh, but generally speaking, I think there's been clarity. Uh, it's just, it's a challenge and folks are looking for the best option. And the big challenge with that is we're not gonna find the best option, we're just gonna find the least bad option because it's so challenging right now to figure out how to roll out appropriate public school education. Yeah, I can speak a little bit to at least being a parent in a very small town in Massachusetts and seeing you know, they've had plans to open on Wednesday. Um, they announced on Saturday, you know what, it's not going to happen. <laughs> We're going to open, but now it's going to be 100% remote and bear with us. We're trying to hire more people. So it also seems like it is incredibly fluid. Um, and at least in Massachusetts, I think Rhode Island's the same. Mac, I don't know if you have the same issue in Arizona, but it's very town by town. Um, every town is kind of assessing their own numbers um, in terms of cases, their own staffing situations, and making decisions. So it seems like across the states, um, there's a lot of different things happening. Students are, have a very different experience in each town. For the fall, 
there's been a lot of guidance, right? And so there, I don't want to say that there's been a lack of clarity around what they expect because we do have very clear metrics on what should be met before a school opens. And you have to meet these, you know, number of cases, percent positivity, COVID-like illness, and you have to meet these certain benchmarks before. Um, and and by executive order, the schools are required to contemplate those benchmarks in their reopening decisions. To Matt's point, who makes that decision? Um, I think is it kind of goes back to what I said in the beginning, like this interesting balance between school board authority and state directive. Uh, because the school boards get to decide when they reopen. So what we're seeing now is some schools went in person immediately, um, even when there was, you know, pursuant to the, the public health guidance, substantial spread. And yet and some schools are, are pretty committed to not reopening in person until October. And some are just now contemplating, like, what, what does hybrid look like? And those are the three categories that our state public health and Department of Education have created. You know, traditional in-person, that's back, back to normal. Um, no social distancing. There is a mask mandate, which was a little slow to come, but we have it by executive order, which has actually been really helpful for schools to lean on because I think like everywhere else, masks are hyper-political, both sides. Uh, and so it's been useful for schools just to be like, hey, look, here's an executive order. It's not, I don't have discretion. And I think that's where it's been really fascinating to watch this allocation of responsibility play out is when do schools, when is it useful for schools to have some discretion? And essentially like we have discretion over when we reopen um, and what model, what, how we phase our reopening. Um, and then some, we just have no discretion at all. You, you need a mask and that's, there's good and bad to both of that. Yeah. Can uh, I just add to that? Yeah, definitely. So a, a challenge we're seeing too, and the complexity of opening and the differences between and among schools in different cities and towns. One of the components of this is operational readiness. Can a school building accommodate the students? And there's guidance from the CDC on physical and social distancing, and some schools just can't meet that. Uh, What the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics have stated is that we weigh strict adherence to things like that with the benefits or the the challenges of bringing students back full in person. And that analysis isn't going to be precisely the same, even within the same cities, because of uh, facilities and capacity. And so when one school determines or a school board determines that they'll open full in-person or hybrid and another school's full distance to start, that doesn't mean one school's doing it wrong and the other's doing it correctly. It just means they were analyzing different components of what they're confronting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and we're seeing, you know, in Arizona, we have charter schools can enroll students from any part of the state. And so, for example, in Phoenix, you can have a school that's located in Gilbert serving a student that lives, you know, conceivably in you know, across the valley, which is a 45-minute hour-long drive. And so there is no catchment. Like the catchment area for Arizona school, charter schools, is the entire state. Um, and what we're seeing, it, to build on Matt's point, I totally agree with that. Like two schools can be literally right next to each other, make different decisions, and both are defensible. Right, both because you're looking at different data, like the student population. Um, you know who's in the building may not be representative of the county or the zip code even uh, where the school is located. So even if you have moderate spread or like low spread in that zip code per the public health guidance, well, you could have kids from predominantly substantial spread, or vice versa, and the decision you make and where your staff are coming from. It's just such a more like granularized analysis than just, okay, our zip code is yellow. Therefore, we can do hybrid. It's just, it's not that simple. Yeah. And speaking of staff, I'd love to, for both of you to weigh in, what kind of staffing issues are you seeing? I'm happy to start with this one. We're seeing an uptick in requests for accommodations pursuant to the Americans with Disabilities Act or 
the various state analogs to the same. So when folks have a qualifying disability that pre-COVID wouldn't have impacted their ability to perform the essential functions of the job, now it does uh, for obvious reasons. We're seeing vastly more of those types of requests. Obviously, with the passage of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, we're seeing requests for emergency paid sick leave, and we're anticipating that we're going to see requests for extended family and medical leave, also pursuant to the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And we just a couple of weeks ago, there was updated guidance from the U.S. Department, Department of Labor indicating that for purposes of emergency paid sick leave, if your child attends a school that is implementing a hybrid model, then that constitutes that school being unavailable for purposes of an employee availing themselves of leave under FFCRA. So we're seeing lots of that and also if something doesn't otherwise fall under a request for leave under the emergency paid sick leave provision or otherwise under FFCRA or doesn't qualify as a, an accommodation under the ADA, folks are understandably anxious and nervous or fearful about returning to work but don't qualify and are asking for adjustments to their work schedule or setting. And in some cases where schools can do that and they can meet those requests and still allow the employee to, to meet the essential or perform the essential functions of the job. In some cases they're doing that so long as they can still appropriately staff uh, the building in the school. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of this. Yeah, exactly the same things. Um, you know, with the, with the federal laws that have been passed recently of that's added complexity. I've been, so I won't reiterate that. I think Matt did a good job of explaining the same types of things we're seeing, but I, I would add, I, I've been pretty surprised in a good way, but also like empathetic to the fears and concerns of teachers. But I've been surprised at how eager so many teachers are to get back in the classroom. Um, yeah, it is. And, but, and I guess like I, but I, I, on the backside, like I, I, I completely understand the fear that many have of not wanting to sacrifice, you know, seeing their elderly in-laws or parents. Right. And so like having to manage that anxiety, um, which is, which has been challenging. What a lot of our schools have are wrestling with now is so in Arizona, every school has to have a mitigation plan um, pursuant to executive order, which means like this is how in each phase we are going to best address the, the challenges uh, to mitigate the virus, the spread of the virus. Well, to what degree do you test your employees? Like, what does that mean, right? Do you run your own tests? You know, Matt referenced the Department of Labor guidance under the ADA. Like they talk about, about testing your own employees and kind of like the, the challenges of doing that, that you can, but it needs to be a valid and reliable test. And like, well, what does that mean for schools who are not doctors and charters don't typically have nurses on, on, on staff. So like health consult, like health advisors aren't ready and, and available. Um, and then it's come up in a couple of contexts, like should schools be testing students? And what does that kind of approach? And there are some companies that I've seen that are trying to market towards that. And I don't see that they have um, emergency authorization from the FDA yet. Uh, but I think those are some challenges in terms of just like managing per who's in the building uh, that our schools are wrestling with. Are schools on either coast um, doing any kind of screening for either employees or students as they enter the building? And can they do that? Are there any legal issues around that? The most common approach I've seen to date is a daily attestation for students and staff. So for students, it might be something on, on Aspen or student manage, data management system where a parent clicks on an app and attests that the student doesn't have symptoms, doesn't hasn't 
been sick, doesn't have fever, those types of things. Uh, might do that on a daily, weekly, or just at the beginning of the school year, attesting to the notion that they, you won't send them if they have any of these symptoms. Similar type thing with staff, maybe in some cases with their daily timesheets that the attestation form is included within that. Uh, folks are wrestling within the region about daily testing when folks are not symptomatic and the appropriateness of that and weighing how to do that uh, if they're going to do it across the board in a way that is feasible, uh, if they're not going to do it across the board in a way that is non-discriminatory, uh, fair, uh, and a transparent process, not transparent that everybody would know that one person's tested. So it's a hot-button issue. Uh, getting guidance from various state and federal agencies, uh, but still leaving questions open about how to handle within a particular school, within a particular city, town, or region. Yeah, so it sounds like both both of our regions are appealing to CDC guidelines on, on mm-hmm. all of that because we're not, um, I haven't seen anything too particular around employee um, screening other than like the Department of Labor CDC type. And I found that a curious, right? The CDC guidance, um, the original and the updated uh, versions, I thought were interesting and basically saved, right? That's for students, like they don't really advise screening students. Uh, like what, and my takeaway was like, their, their position was like, what's the point, right? Um, they're not going to typically, they may not show symptoms and and the like. And so that's a challenge for, for schools to wrestle with. But yeah, I mean, other than like what Matt said, similarly here that, you know, maybe some schools might be doing like temperature checks and that sort of thing. Um, and having staff filling out forms on a, on a daily basis, but but it kind of spans the spectrum. Um, so uh, for both coasts, in terms of liability, how are you advising clients to protect themselves with some of the issues that could potentially come up in the fall? I'm advising clients to adhere to CDC, State Department of Health, State Department of Education guidelines for reopening. And if folks meet metrics and they've done an internal analysis on operational readiness and they can open in some form, then they can do it so long as they employ the measures that they've stated they'd employ. So if you said you were going to have certain distancing and classroom space and use certain PPE, then actually do it. If you're going to have certain uh, processes for uh, isolating students that are exhibiting symptoms and actually do those types of things. And so long as you adhere to the guidelines, most cases, the guidelines from the state are going to be vetted through their respective departments of health. And from there, with input from CDC, with input from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and so adhering to those, are designed to ensure that schools open as safely as as possible under the circumstances. Now, if a school doesn't meet any of the metrics, let's say the statewide data doesn't support opening, the municipal data doesn't support opening, they don't have the ability to test, they don't have the supplies and their buildings aren't ready, and they want to go full in person five days a week, well, that's going to be a challenge. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of that. On the flip side, when folks are meeting those metrics and uh, notwithstanding, there's a decision by the governing body of the school to remain distant because after evaluating the data, that is the most appropriate course in their collective mind at that moment, then that could be okay. Uh, one challenge we've seen in New England, uh, the governor in Rhode Island a couple weeks back indicated that, well, if you meet the metrics and you don't open, uh, the student has a right to an, an education. So we'll leave it to families to pursue legal avenues. So that's catalyzed the discussion around the appropriateness or the capacity that 
governing bodies of schools have to determine what's best or least bad uh, for their particular schools. It's it's hard, uh, and certainly all are worried about liability. But I'd say liability comes second. It is clear that with all schools and school systems that I've interacted with, that health and safety are number one. And that's what they're thinking about. And liability, although important, is something that is a thought, but it's not detracting from their laser focus on health and safety. And I've been impressed across the board how school administrators, faculty, and staff have approached that over the last six months. It's been remarkable. Yeah, I think that's exactly, you know, the standard go-to is like follow all applicable laws, follow, comply with your local public health guidance, CDC guidance. But man, I, I, I get confused by trying to reconcile all of that. And so the challenges for schools to digest and then operationalize that guidance is really hard. Um, in Arizona, pursuant to executive order, all public schools have to have both a mitigation plan and a distance learning plan uh, drafted, implemented, and posted online. The mitigation plan is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's this like public health, like it's this health and safety approach. Like, how is the school going to uh, mitigate the spread of the virus, uh, including social distancing, mask wearing, which is required. So you have to have face coverings. You have to have a face covering policy in place in Arizona. Um, and so the mitigation plan, what we started seeing is to Matt's point, like these mitigation plans started to have a lot of stuff in them. Um, and as just like a general matter, don't put anything in a policy that you are not able to comply with. Right. And so make sure, making sure that those, whatever plans you're putting out uh, are, are reasonable or something that you're going to be able to do. Right? They're ambitious, they're carefully calculated to address the health and safety concerns and risks that you're, you're addressing, but are something that you can operationalize on a day-to-day basis. I've been, I think this has been a real test for a lot of schools, particularly our like, single school site charters, where the role of their board has become more important. Right? And so like the scope of authority, who's making decisions, just crisis management. This has been an inflection point for particularly smaller schools, to reflect on how crises are handled and the role of the board in those responses. And I agree with Matt. I, you know, I think this health and safety comes first. And the liability seems to be like the key question that keeps everybody up at night. Like, am I going to get sued? I'm going to, how's this going to play out? Um, I, I you know, talk to the lawyer to see, you know, what is my liability? And like the unfortunate answer is like, well, you could get sued. Yep. Like you can get sued for anything. And there's lots of plaintiffs attorneys out there that are itching for a reason, right? Like I remember reading some, I think it was in the CARES Act. Yeah. I think it was in some draft uh, immunity language that was addressing this new market, but essentially it was like addressing plaintiffs attorneys. Right. And the, the fact is, is I think in the end, as long as you are like, if you're that concerned about the liability side, then I think you're also paying attention to the health and safety issues and you are acting reasonably and doing everything within, you know, that's reasonably within your, your power to, to protect your kids and your staff members, your team. And as long as you're doing that, that's all you can do, right? Like that's your locus of control. That's what you actually have authority. You can't stop somebody from finding a plaintiff's attorney who's going to sue you for something you didn't do, right? Or something you could have done. Um, but in the end, and I think this is playing out as, I was listening to a, a, a school law webinar last week that was, they, they had done, the presenter had done a little digging into um, current claims across the country related to COVID. And according to, to that slide, and I, I haven't embedded this on my own, but it said, you know, the tort, and negligence claims are actually a pretty small number of those. And the majority of these are coming out of like insurance claims, business interruption, um, you know, landlord tenant disputes. Like there are, there are a lot of cases, particularly out of New York. So good job for you guys. Uh, but that, um, you know, and this, our sense from the beginning has been that a tort claim is going to be tough to prove. 
Like, how do you prove causation? And then how do you prove a breach of duty? Right. And I think that's where the breach of duty in particular is by doing, having, having a plan in place, having procedures in place that are based on data that are used, you know, that are generally compliant with, that are compliant with CDC guidelines and aren't, you know, contrary to local, local public health guidance, then you're positioning yourself the best you can. And the key is to put something that allows you to sleep and, you know, sleep at night and focus on educating kids. Um, are you both seeing with your clients and schools in your areas an increase in financial hardships right now? Or does it seem like everybody's kind of holding steady? Folks across the board are worried about finances. And we're, our schools are spending more money than they obviously anticipated on health and safety measures for this year because they've had to buy supplies. They've had to hire vendors and additional staff to comply with cleaning and safety protocols. Um, so I shouldn't say things they didn't anticipate, things they wouldn't have anticipated pre-COVID for this school year. So we're, we're seeing that. Uh, obviously, implementing distance learning or hybrid models comes with increased technology costs, in some cases, increased staffing costs, in many cases, overtime costs for existing staff, things like that. There's been some savings from last year on things like transportation, things like itinerant staff or consultants that schools didn't need to use because everybody was remote learning for two and a half or three months, but that got eaten up fast. By, by the increases in responding to the crisis. And that gets further complicated by both the U.S. Department of Education and the State Departments of Education and our respective governments telling us that aid may look different this year and probably will look different. Uh, so that's been a challenge. That's something else keeping educators up at night on the long list of things, keeping them up at night. And it's, it's hard to give them comfort on that front because we're all eagerly anticipating a federal response to bridge a gap or to get us over this hurdle so until we return to something that resembles normal yeah same in arizona districts charters everyone is facing a lot of financial anxiety and i mean there are there's the technology divide trying to fight that on your you know, standard state aid is really tough. How do you push out a bunch of Wi-Fi hotspots to to your communities to make sure that kids are able to access your the online curriculum that you've had to develop in the last six months, um, and the technology you've had, the software you've had to buy, and the licenses, and trying to like wrap your mind around all of that, uh, trying to implement it in Arizona. As I mentioned earlier, we have our state funding mechanism is brick and mortar or online and online by statute is funded at either 95% of brick and mortar funding or 85% if you're a part for so 95% if you're a full-time online student 85% of a typical average daily membership you know per people funding level if you're part-time and so through executive order, that, that's the funding mechanism right now. So every school is taking a haircut by that, but the governor has stepped up and created an enrollment stability grant program with, I think, CARES Act dollars to help fill that hole. Um, and so that's great. That's, that helps ease some anxiety around you know, potential drops in, in funding because of the way that we're treating students, again, because of our school finance model doesn't under, can't comprehend distance learning with a brick and mortar structure. But that's all based on, you know, anticipated calculations. And so schools are districts and charters alike are, are guaranteed 98% or not, yeah, 98% of what they, of their average daily membership ADM from last year. So like kind of holding them, like they'll, they'll only drop 2% so that districts have some predictability in the, in the current school year or, their 40 day count student count this year because what one tent one point was 
well, what about schools that are seeing district and charters alike? What about schools that are growing? And particularly district or charters, like what about charter networks that are adding a school site? And we can't hold it to last year's funding. So we're going to, so we're, they, they were good about, I think the governor was, was quite good about creating this other fund to help fill that hole to allow for schools to get funded um, at their current year enrollment if they're growing. But again, like that's, that's budgeted on projections. And there has been some talk about, you know, are those, were those projections too conservative? So in addition to all the other costs that we're, we're experiencing, um, you know, we we're not totally confident. We don't know, like we won't know uh, whether or not there was enough money there. And, and back during the Great Recession, I mean, there was a in Arizona. Although our funding has been held constant in the Great Recession, our the school funding, education funding was decreased, and so we don't know what that's going to look like, right? As the um, economic toll of the of coronavirus kind of shows its teeth. How? Is special education being handled? Do you, either of you have any information on that area? I can speak generally that the U.S. Department of Education has indicated that LEAs, in, including charter schools that implement individualized education programs for students, are required to afford students access to a free, appropriate public school education consistent with their needs. Uh, that, that was a case pre-COVID. It's a case now. Uh, the challenge is going to be how do we do that when some students are accessing their education remotely or, or through a distance model uh, who otherwise received services that would typically be offered in school? Let's say I have a one-on-one aid for transitions between classes, and now either I've elected or I am medically uh, mandated to uh, uh, attend school remotely. Well, what does that mean for my one-on-one aid that was there to assist with transition between classes? So states are wrestling with this. School districts and charter schools are wrestling with this. Uh, State departments of education are encouraging schools and school districts to collaborate with their families about the implementation of their IEPs and about how they can revise their IEPs to reflect what's actually happening and how they can meet goals and how they can add different components of an IEP so that the student can get access to an appropriate education in our different environment. It's my understanding that that's generally the case uh, throughout the states. I don't know that there's any place that's doing that different in light of the federal government's indication that that's how we're going to approach implementation of individuals with disabilities education act. Yeah. And I just, add, I think that Matt summed that up really, really well. And I would, I'm not a special ed attorney. Um, I know just enough to be dangerous, but I would encourage, I mean, just reviewing the types of documents, even like surveys for families, seeing what kind of supports they're going to need. Uh, there, are, I've seen questions that raise concerns from my end about like, uh, is this actually, are you, are you asking questions that could trigger obligations under the IDEA and 504? So I would encourage school leaders, if you haven't already, just to have a quick chat with your special education council to talk through kind of what you're doing and just have a sensitive eye towards the questions and the interactions and communications you're having with families in case you know, you're asking questions that are going to nip you later. I can't emphasize Mac's last point enough. Consult with your legal counsel. And I'm not saying that to be self-serving. This is something we haven't seen before. This is challenging. These are issues that we're going to deal with for years, uh, not just during the pandemic or for the early part of 2021, even if the pandemic is subsiding. We're going to feel effects for this. And to navigate it, you need to work closely and collaboratively with your counsel so we can get through it the best we can while affording students access to what's appropriate for them. Okay, great advice. Thank you. Do you think, are you seeing policies and procedures that have been developed specifically in response to COVID that you think are going to be here to stay the long term? I think this is a great question. In particular, I I don't know about like particular school-based like operational policies and procedures, but I think, and I'm I'm reminded of Rahm Emanuel's quote, right, that 
never allow a good crisis to go to waste. It's the opportunity to do things you never thought possible and make them possible. And I've been thinking about this a lot in Arizona. Like this is a moment in time where we can reflect on kind of structural inequities that we see in our education system. And so, I mean, beyond just like the school finance, like we need to revamp our, like I've kind of harped on, our school finance structure does not contemplate hybrid learning, right? 21st century learning. It just doesn't contemplate it. We're utterly perplexed and it's like putting a square peg in a round hole, trying to get money to schools for what we're trying to do now. We're seeing a big push strategically from a variety of networks that never thought about having an online program, think about, apply for, and get permission from the, our state charter authorizer to run online programs. I think that's something that's going to stay. I think some degree of hybrid learning will be here now. I mean, even in like, the employment context, working remotely, so many employers have been reticent to try it. And now we've all been forced to like this great social experiment of remote working and like productivity has skyrocketed. So have other like mental health issues and other concerns. Like people are actually now we're concerned that they're overworking, right? That, but productivity has typically actually like increased. So I think that's, that's one aspect, but like that brings with it some challenges that we need to be really aware of, right? Because what we've seen is that COVID at least has identified these inequities that have existed for a long time. The digital divide, for example, Reading comprehension. I mean, we know that in, in the younger grades, as they're learning to read, of course, it's going to be hard for them to navigate an online curriculum. But what about your ninth grader who's reading at a fourth, fourth grade level, right? So reading comprehension alone is a, is a barrier to um, meaningful participation in society and the workplace. Technology comprehension and access, special education, special needs and ELL. And for English language learners, particularly in Arizona, um, we're seeing a big a challenge where, like, if, if you're gonna have, if you run an immersion program for ELL for English language learner students, how do you do that in a remote environment? Um, and so, I think historically we've seen online schools underperform, and there, there's a lot of explanations for that. There's data like the types of students are serving and the rest, but I think as we move into this new phase of potential new frontier of education, this more like hybrid technology-based education, particularly with like a hybrid remote aspect to it. Um, we need to really think critically about the steps we take and how we bake this model into statute and reg, because I think it, it needs to in order to be a program of instruction that is accessible to all schools and to all students who choose it. But we have to think about the backside accountability of that too, to make sure that um, the learning is truly happening. Like in Arizona, the online instruction program was kind of created as a as a, a kind of a case study of sorts. I mean, it was like a, like a pilot program in the beginning, and we haven't reflected on the implications of of what this program means for Arizona students. And I think this is the moment in time where we can really reflect on some of those those issues and, and build a, a an education system that is more accessible, more nimble and responds better to the needs of the diverse student population that we serve. I can add to that with a, another example. Uh, my children started today for the first day of school in the same public school system where I attended schools in the heart of New England in a little 343-year-old town where they won't get to hear magical words that I heard from my 13 years of compulsory education over the radio waves at some point between December and March after a snowstorm. And that was no school. <laughs> and so snow, we probably won't see snow days the way we have seen them, at least in my childhood, where between three and five days a year, you wouldn't have school unexpectedly. Uh, because it snowed overnight and the plows couldn't clear the roads in time for the buses to operate the next day. And now that, to Max's point, we've, we're implementing remote learning in a, in a better way and hopefully soon in a way that's accessible to all our learners, that when it snows and buses can't operate and bring kids safely to school, that we're still going to have school. We're not going to have snow days to make up at the end of our calendar going into late June, at least not here in the Northeast. So 
that's something and that kind of is a builds on the great points that Mac eloquently outlined for us. Sorry, what's a snow day? <laughs> joking, joking. To all friends and flags, schools and flag staff that get hammered. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Now there's greater equality across the entire country. Thank you both for joining me today. I appreciate it. Um, Matt, your insights for the East Coast were great. Mac, the West Coast, the best coast. I don't know. We'll have to discuss that further. So I'd love to have you back again. Oh, yeah. That'll be a whole episode in and of itself, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. appreciate you guys including me. Yeah, th thanks, Diana. Mac, always great catching up with you and always great to hear your apt legal insight. Likewise. For more information about COVID-19 and charter school and other education law issues, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or find us on social media by searching for Barton Gilman. Mac, or Mackenzie Woods, is an education attorney practicing at Osborne Meldon in Arizona. Like Matt, Mac was a teacher in his pre-law life as an 8th grade science teacher with Teach for America in Memphis, Tennessee. He even considered starting a charter school himself, but after serving as Arizona State Board for Charter School's first legal fellow, he became devoted to the movement by legally representing and growing a number of high-impact schools. To learn more about Mac, please visit www dot omlaw.com or email him directly at mwoods at omlaw.com. Thanks for joining us today. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.